You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Coming up on the roundup, a first look at March of the Machines. How to prepare for your next paper RCQ. Plus new technology in modern featuring unlikely heroes, Shining Shoal, and Graz, Unstoppable Juggernaut. All of that and more is coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, and I'm joined today all the way from Buenos Aires, Argentina. You know him as Mord to Light. It's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, yo. How's it going, Dan? Been a while. How's it going, bud? Yeah. Been a couple weeks. Doing well, doing well. How about you? All good. Been a bit overwhelmed with work and such, but doing good, playing some magic, got a beautiful 5-0 with goblins. So all is good. Same thing we do every week. Get a 5-0 with goblins. The same thing we do every single night, Pinky. Get a 5-0 with goblins. Oh, goblins. Yeah, you've been crushing with that deck. I'm on the verge. I've had the cards in my like shopping cart. Is today the day that I buy the cards I need and learn this goblins deck? Because it just sounds so sweet. I'm trying to get more people into the goblin fiesta, but people don't want to follow me down that road. It's a dangerous road. Many old fives lay ahead. You have to show them the way. You have to light the path. Someone has to show them the way. So we got a lot to get to today. Just a weekly roundup, but a lot of stuff happened this week. Uh, some of it is magic news. Some is just our personal magic journey. I played a few tournaments, getting back into paper magic, finally. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what I've been playing and... Uh, some of my thought processes preparing for some local events. We also had, uh, just hours after we recorded last week's shows, a whole pile of previews dropped kind of unexpectedly during the Pro Tour stream. And we didn't cover them last week, so we are going to talk about the exciting cards there from March of the Machine. And after all that, I mean, there's so many sweet brews getting published uh, these last few weeks. It's just a really exciting time. As we are exploring the cards from Phyrexia All Will Be One, there's so many sweet developments. Hmm. We've got a couple decks picked out that have been crushing the modern events in Magic Online, and we will talk about all the latest tech. Absolutely. How much did All Will Be One end up shaking the formats as we're on the verge of new sets in the following months? I'm very excited for <laughs> this, <laughs> this Juggernaut deck. I want to skip to that now, but okay, we got to go in order. Stick to the plan. <laughs> we want to skip, but we can. Yeah. All right. So a lot to get to, but before we get to all of that, let's just get our housekeeping out of the way right at the very top. We do have some new patrons we would like to welcome to the Faithless family. They are Jack H, Caleb C, David V, and IRL Green Creature. Hmm. Also want to thank Bromac Courier for going up a tier in their pledge. 
So thank you all very much for your support. You got some new faces, some returning faces. Some increasing faces. Exactly. Patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. That's where you can sign up if you are enjoying the show, if you'd like to show us a little support. You get access to our wonderful Discord community. You can make a pledge at any tier you like. We also have rewards. We have merch. We have tokens. We have playmats. We have monthly projects where you can vote on cards. Actually, we are just wrapping up another vote. There's probably one day left in the voting as you're hearing this episode, so there's still time if you want to make your voice heard and help guide us towards the next great card to brew around. Exactly. Right now, there seems to be a card pretty far ahead. We're not going to say which, but by the time you're hearing this, it might have been that card that will end up winning. I think it's ahead by a few votes. Like a meaningful lead, but it's not insurmountable by any stretch. Oh, absolutely. There wasn't a call to arms this time. There hasn't been a rally against certain cards. It has been a much more peaceful voting. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a more introspective round of voting this time. You know, a lot of people in the Discord discussing the kind of philosophy behind it. Like, what are they looking for? Yeah, yeah, this was sort of more philosophical, less marketing there wasn't banners, there wasn't an all-out war for each single one of them. Well, there was one like political banner, and actually I think that card is in the lead right now. So. <laughs> Self-promotion works, you know, if you believe in your product, you've got to go out and advertise it. Make a good enough banner and you cannot lose. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we will have the winner for you next week, and we will start brewing with it. That's next week's show. Let's get into it for today. What do we got, Mord? So right away, firing up, we have our weekly roundup with Dan going all on about his RCQ prep. Yeah, so I recently moved to Texas and discovered that there's a great magic scene here. Not only are there like numerous shops very close to me, uh, Wizards Premier Shops, but discovered that friend of the show and amazing brewer Lawson Zandy is also an Austin native, so got in touch with Lawson, and we've decided to shake off the rust and just get back into the paper scene. Right away. Exactly, exactly. And there's a lot of events to go to. There's FNMs two, three times a week. Texas is a big state, so FNM can't just be contained to Friday. You have the Tuesday FNM, the Thursday FNM, and the Friday FNM. RCQ season is also in full swing, so I had... One RCQ this past weekend that was Pioneer, and another one coming up in Modern this weekend. And how are you going to go for it? Well, that's the question, right? I'm pretty out of practice, I have to say, Mord. Not just myself shuffling paper cards, but even just updating my paper collection, getting decks assembled. So the thought process of, like, what do I want out of these tournaments? You know, do I want to build a new deck? Do I want to learn a new deck? Do I want to buy new cards? Uh, or do I just want to take what I already have and try to get it into fighting shape and, you know, just make a day of it and hope for the best? Uh, I'm still trying to wrestle with those questions myself. You know, magic, especially paper magic, is, is super expensive. Oh, yeah, it's super it's super expensive and it's constantly shifting what you have to pay. Even playing magic can be expensive sometimes. Like, even when you own the cards. Yeah, exactly, because you realize that, okay, I'm going to spend the entry fee for the event, which can be, you know, it can add up. And then if you're going to do that, you know, I want to at least have my deck more or less optimized the way I want. So I should buy that, you know, that extra land I'm missing or 
that one sideboard card that may or may not come up, hmm. but you know, that's going to be another $10 out the door. It definitely, you notice it on the credit card statement uh, at the end of the month, <laughs> the return to paper play. If we have played enough magic, you can tell in the end of the month statement. Exactly. Yeah, we've been pleasantly insulated from all this uh, thanks to playing online with rental services. Um, but the return to paper. So for Pioneer, what did I do? Well, my personal experience as well as my paper collection is strongest in the Is It colors. You know, I've played a lot of Is It decks. I really like the Crackling Drake versions of Is It, but I've played Is It Phoenix off and on again. So after, you know, weighing the options of should I try to pick up a new deck or just go with what I have, I ended up choosing Is It Phoenix. I have not really played this deck since the Expressive Iteration ban. It's been kind of floating around tier two, two and a half in the meta. You know, it's still like a deck that is out there, but it's not usually mentioned as one of the top decks. Okay. But it exists. It's an existing deck. Exactly. Definitely an existing deck. And I had a pretty good showing at the Pro Tour. Yeah. Three things were the questions I had going into the weekend. So first, does Is It Phoenix still have that it factor after the Expressive Iteration ban? You know, does, does it still have the sauce where you can really feel like you're doing something overpowering and just get those easy wins? Expressive was by far the best card in the deck. And if you look at what Is It Phoenix decks have to play to replace it, we're back on stuff like Chart of Course or Strategic Planning. Is yeah, it Charm? clearly not the same power level. Yeah, you really feel that um, Expressive Iteration just lets you fight through any kind of situation and, and just be like the best fair deck at the table in addition to doing unfair graveyard stuff. Yeah. Now uh, we don't have that. We have to just rely heavily on pieces of the puzzle. Which is significantly worse. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good at what it does, but what it does is a lot worse than what EI does. EI was good at doing anything, this one isn't. Exactly. We did get some new toys. We have Ledger Shredder now, uh, we have Brotherhood's End in the sideboard, but there are also new enemies out there in the metagame. Uh, Shale Dread, in particular, will just end the game if you don't have a Lightning Axe for it. And a lot of decks are now playing Unlicensed Hearse, whereas before, you know, they might not have an attractive graveyard option. Yeah. According to the win rate matrix that Frank Karsten helpfully published from Pro Tour Phyrexia, you know, Phoenix did pretty well. It had a 55% overall win rate. When you look at how it matched up against all of the most commonly played archetypes, it was even or positive, just slightly positive. So nothing amazing. It didn't make top eight. I think the best finishing Phoenix player was eight and two in Constructed. And it didn't win any of the major events uh, over the weekend. One player on Magic Online did do very well with his own take on Phoenix. That's a player named O. Danielakos, a Greek MTGO grinder. And when I looked at his results, I noticed that, well, A, he's been on Phoenix forever, and B, he went a different direction with his build. So in the Pro Tour lists, they were all using Ledger Shredder as their complementary creature of choice. So four Phoenix, four Shredder, and maybe one copy of Thing in the Ice. Whereas O. Danielakos is playing four Phoenix and four Thing in the Ice, and no Ledger Shredders. Okay, just going a bit more against the board. I remember Shredder being particularly good in the Iset Mirrors and such, rather than against Creature decks. Exactly, exactly. I mean, Shredder does a little of something very good, controlling the board one creature at a time and just improving your draws, giving you that, that extra discard outlet for the Phoenix. 
but it rarely wins a game by itself. Whereas Thing in the Ice rages from meh doing nothing at all, exactly, meh, to being just like the, the biggest haymaker you can imagine for the matchup. It was traditionally your card you turned to against Mono Green, but I suspected that it would also be an important card against both Grease Fang and the Auras deck, which Again, looking at Karsten's win rate matrix, those were the top two performing archetypes overall at the Pro Tour. Hmm. So thinking about this, like, do I expect the people playing at this random paper RCQ to be like very responsive to what happened at the Pro Tour? Do I expect people to pick up Grease Fang and pick up Auras based on, you know, what, what they saw from this data? Or do I think people will just play what they already have, like a more random field? that might tip the scales towards Thing of the Ice or Ledger Shredder one way or the other. Hmm. But that's mostly an estimate, right? There's no empirical evidence that you can go off. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I, I don't actually know still if it's worth going that far down the rabbit hole. The people that I asked about this said, you know, just assume people will just play what they have. They'll play what they like and they play what they have. And that's probably true. Like, I saw maybe a couple more Grease Fane decks than... There would have been before the Pro Tour. I don't know if I saw any Auras players um, at this event. Okay. So for me, what was decisive was just like, well, I like Thing in the Ice and I own that card. Shredder is expensive. I don't really want to buy too many Shredders. I borrowed a couple from Lawson and did a 3-2 split. So a 3 Thing in the Ice, 2 Shredder. 2 Shredders, more than enough. Except when it isn't. When you got to play all the Set Mortide Mirrors. Yeah, and it turns out there were a lot of it players. I think that's the thing that I just forgot, and I'm quickly relearning that people in paper just love their it cards. People love playing it. People love doing nothing as they draw cards. It's a good feeling. You just feel like you're having such a great time, right? You feel like you're doing your thing, even if you're making terrible decisions. Even if you're losing, you're still doing stuff. I'm, I'm guessing consider after consider after um, pieces of the puzzle. I draw like seven cards. You win no, but seven cards. That's exactly it. Like, I was very keenly aware as I was operating the deck that, boy, I'm rusty. I'm, I'm definitely making subpar decisions. I'm spewing value. But damn, so many decisions. <laughs> There's a lot of decisions, but if you don't think about it too hard, if you just enjoy the feeling of resolving your cantrips, um, you can just have a good time. You can leave with a smile on your face, even though you let the game slip away at several points <laughs> throughout the game. <laughs> so, yeah, the rust factor was a third big question, right? Apart from. You know, what should I play and what build is correct? The personal part is, you know, can I actually shake off the rusts, learn this deck or relearn this deck enough to equip myself well in this tournament? And this part was a lot harder because I just haven't played a big paper event in a while. I've never really done a good job of getting a good night's sleep the night beforehand. You know, I, I get like a little excited or anxious i get super shittery i'm unable to sleep efficiently after before a big tournament or a tournament i'm excited for you too yeah do you have any strategies for that no but i'm just no i just used to not sleeping much yeah and i think because you're young you can operate your mind better on less sleep on, on less resources i can do with what i have <laughs> exactly that no longer applies to me, and I just have to admit that now, because, again, I did not sleep well. I was up too late, just, like, fiddling with the deck list, browsing through uh, tournament results. Getting nervous, pondering on the last decisions. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I just threw off my routine for the next day. I woke up 
you know, with not enough sleep and, you know, didn't leave enough time to, you know, make sure I had breakfast and packed a lunch and brought water and all that. So the tournament started off and yeah, I won my first two rounds. I beat Mono Green, I beat uh, Boros Burn deck, but I could tell right away that, boy, I'm like, I'm not, my mind is not thinking through every decision properly. When I got to the rounds three and four, I got paired against blue decks. I got paired against blue white and is it creativity? Lost both of those rounds. In those cases, I took the first game in both rounds, which is usually a good sign because you look at the sideboard and it's got all these anti-blue cards, you know, cheap counter magic and et cetera, et cetera. Being up a game and bringing in cheap counter magic should be a recipe for success, but I still, I was not able to like win those sideboard games. Part of that was just me not playing well. Like I definitely missed some triggers. I rushed some decisions. I, I just like made some bad plays. Also, you know, they, they were also prepared for the matchups as well. Like blue white has plenty of tools to just kill all my threats. So I think I probably could have squeezed at least one win out of those two rounds, possibly both if I'd done things a little differently. And that was a case where, you know, my lack of preparation, uh, my inexperience with the deck and my just lack of physical preparation definitely came and cost me there. But no one to blame but myself for that. That was a learning experience. I won round five against Greasefang. Thing in the Ice was crucial there. And in round six, uh, at that point, at three and two, I was in ninth place. And the top eight was able to just draw in a clean cut. So it didn't bother to play the last round. Although technically, my opponent scooped. So I got that ninth place finish that we all love. We all love. Literally the best possible position, ninth. The one you go to cry because it's not enough and I'm still happy because you did your best. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't do my best. <laughs> but I had fun nevertheless. We always do our best, even if it doesn't reach out to our full amount. We did try to make our best. And in the tr Magic Tournament, that's all that we can care about. I definitely like had fun. And it was just like a nice, a nice return to paper play. I think, you know, Lawson and I both agreed that, boy, we played... Pretty badly in this event. <laughs> we, we didn't do our best in terms of like setting ourselves up to win the tournament, but it was just nice to be back in the scene. You know, I got to meet some people who were fans of the show, um, just got to be around a bunch of people excited about Pioneer again. And, you know, seeing all these things that we theory craft and talk about every week, just manifesting at the tables was, was actually really cool. And we definitely left the event feeling motivated to play more of them. To come back for the next one. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of which, my next one is going to be a modern event, and that's coming up this weekend. Mord, you are a modern expert, so I'm very curious to hear your take. If you were me, if you're in my situation, how would you approach an RCQ this week? So, I have not been playing many RCQs, but I try to take them super relaxed. I don't let them get to my head. I just try to play them like I would play any like big um, semi-big open, like big FNM. How big are the RCQs you have been playing? Uh, well, this Pioneer one was about 40 people. Okay, so they're like small opens. I think the modern one will be more, probably 60 or 70. All right. So a big enough number, so like six rounds maybe? Five, six rounds? Probably, yeah, seven rounds, I'm guessing, uh, with, you know, five and one, and five one and one will make top eight, most likely. Yeah. Hmm, so how would I approach it? I think I would go for a route of trying to find the deck I feel more comfortable with, with and try to tune it for the actual meta. I wouldn't try to learn something new unless I actually found something new that I would love, but rather I would try to find the deck I feel the most comfortable and go deep into it. 
So you're not going to insist that I learn goblins this week and, and sleeve up the frog tosser bannerets? I could get you through a whole intensive goblin trial in 48 hours. <laughs> like we could do goblin Thursday, just me coaching you through all the Thursdays and we can do it, but... I mean, I would love Goblin Thursday. <laughs> we can do Goblin Thursday. We can have you all propped up for the, for the RCQ. But it has to be the deck. I always find the better results with the deck I'm the most excited for. Not the most powerful, but rather the one I will be the happiest or less tilted when things goes wrong because I feel the most on tune with my deck. I think once you get into more, once you get into the formats like Modern, Pioneer, formats where I'm not talking about standard, of course, because the card pool isn't big enough. But here, where the percentage difference between decks doesn't vary more like 3-4% win rate, in a 7-round tournament, 3-4% win rate is going to be a lot smaller than your own mental gaming. So playing something you like will be more important than playing the perfect deck. All right, well, that philosophy makes sense. In practice, what that means for me is there's two modern decks that I'm comfortable with that I enjoy. One of them is Sultai Crabvine. The usual kind of my, my fallback deck when I have to play a paper event. I don't think that deck is particularly good these days. It hasn't gotten any new cards in a long time. Um, it really was great against Lurus, and Lurus has been banned for a while now. <laughs> Rape Lurus. Yeah, I find that I'm like at a 55% win rate with Crabvine, which, while that sounds good when you're making a banned announcement, it's in practice not very good <laughs> for like playing Magic Online Leagues or, or trying to win a tournament. The other deck that I have built, which I thought was retired, is the Colorless Eldrazi Stompy, the Serum Powder Eldrazi. This is a deck that mulligans extremely aggressively to try to find Eldrazi Temple. It uses a full set of Serum Powder, trying to exile Eternal Scourges. You can exile them with Serum Powders and Gemstone Caverns. And it plays a whole bunch of creature lands. So it doesn't play the Tron lands, it doesn't play Karn. It's just trying to play a whole pile of Mutavolts and now Mishra's Factories and Blink Moth Nexi. They just chip in for damage. This deck was never great. It was like tier three, tier two and a half, but I had a pretty good results with it. This is years ago. This is like before MH2. <laughs> in the good old days. With Simeon Spirit Guide. With Simeon Spirit Guide for your turn one Chalice of the Void. Exactly. That was like the one of the big plays you could do. You could either lead on... Aldrazi Temple the Thought Not Seer, or you could go, you know, turn one Chalice pretty consistently. Does this deck even exist without Simeon Spirit Guide? Well, I figured before I just throw this deck in the trash, I should at least try to update it, right? Because no one's really playing this anymore. I expect it just to suck, but it's actually kind of okay. Like, I played three leagues this week. I took it to FNM. Uh, my results were 4-1, 4-1, 2-3 in the Magic Online Leagues. I went 3-1 at FNM. And then 3 3 Amana Traders. So, not amazing, but it was positive overall. I think 16 and 9 with the deck. And I was actually really enjoying it. Even though I, I definitely felt that I was playing underpowered cards, it was just like, it gave me life. You know, I really enjoyed <laughs> just the process of mulliganing and looking for these kind of un unusual opening hands where, you know, Eternal Scourge just brings a smile to my face. What do you think about a deck like this? Or given these two options, do you feel like either one of these would be a reasonable choice for a modern event? I think so. I, I think more than anything, it's going to be a reasonable option. I do think Sultai Crabby might do better, mostly due to the velocity of the format, that sometimes without Simia Spirit Guide, Etron, um, Eldrassi decks might fall a tad behind without the Eldrassi Temple Hands. 
You know they can. Sometimes you just call turn two thought not seer, turn three smasher, and it doesn't matter what the opponent is playing. Yeah, those don't happen that often. I mean, the biggest problem is that because of Modern Horizons 2, Solitude and Fury are just such a kick in the teeth for all oh, yeah. the Eldrazi creatures. All of the creatures that people play in Modern are just like way better than all the Eldrazi. Smasher doesn't even trade favorably with Solitude because it's spells, not abilities. So it's not even like you can at least say, oh, I got a two for one, I got a one for one. Nope. You paid five mana for your opponent's five mana flash play to become a two for one. So if I had to break it down simply, I would say that this Eldrazi deck is actually still pretty good against red, it's good against blue, and it's pretty good against black. Uh, it's terrible against white. It's terrible against green, that includes both Amulet and Yawgmoth. And against colorlessly, if someone's playing a bigger Eldrazi deck or a Tron deck, it's also a little bit iffy. Some would say red is the best color in modern right now, so a deck that is like pretty solid hmm. against red cards. Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if I just want to believe in this deck. I just like intuitively understand that it's underpowered, but... But I want to believe in it. Yeah. So I don't know, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, do I trust that the Eldrazi will ha let me have fun for the day, even if I'm going to go, like, five and two, four and three? Alternatively, you, you can just learn Trash for Treasure deck. Okay, that's more tempting. I mean, I'm sure you have some Trash for Treasure lying around in your house. I, I do. I have, like, a whole pile of Trash See? for Treasure, right? There's no way you don't have a full playset of Trash for Treasure. I have Trash for Treasure, but I don't have the rest of the deck, unfortunately. Shh, that's the easy part. All right, well, I'll ponder it this week. I'll ponder your, your counsel, and I'll let you know how it all turns out. All right, so that's my little tournament report section. Next up, we have our news of the week. That includes this delicious Trash for Treasure deck. But before we get to those, uh, we do want to talk about some unexpected preview cards. Tell me about March of the Machines. So we got... All ahead spoilers into March of the Machines. They said it's coming out in May, I think, or mid-April. We just got like a heads up. So there's some time for it. Don't worry, everybody. These cards are not coming out like next week. You can still enjoy your, your one cards and there's nothing wrong with that. So don't worry. you. But already got some spoilers for the next set. And there has been some leaks that we're not going to talk about. But for people that care about that, there has been some Lord of the, Le of the Rings leaks yesterday. Oh, I didn't even hear about that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So there has been three cards already leaked in the name of a mechanic for people that care about that stuff. You're going to be able to find it super easily on Reddit and such. Okay. Let's keep this yeah, leak free zone. We can't go too far into the future. Exactly. So, but one of the first cards we got from March of the Machines, or MAM, as we're going to affectionately call it, is the Yuta Takahashi World Champion card. Finally given to us, and now we're only missing Nathan Stewart's one. So what do you think of Fairy Mastermind? Yeah, Fairy Mastermind. One in a blue, creature, fairy, rogue. 2-1, flash, flying. Whenever an opponent draws their second card each turn, you draw a card. Activated ability 3 in a blue, each player draws a card. And it says down in the flavor description, Yuta Takahashi, world champion. Yuta, of course, is Vendillion. That's his Magic Online username. So mm. a little bit of a fairies aficionado. Just a great moment. Wasn't Yuta... Yuta! 
¿Vos sentís esta de... <risa> the creator of the... Eternal Commander, casual? I believe that's Shota Yasuoka. Oh, okay. Yuta is a longtime Fairies fan, so it's good to see a nice Fairies card here. Did it make me think, like, can this revive the Fairies deck? The truth about Fairies is that they're not really a tribe. They're just a philosophy. There's not a single Fairies payoff that I would actually play in modern these days. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, no. They're not reasonable payoff for playing Fairies nowadays, like, at all. You have a three-mana Flash Lord, you have Bitter Blossom, you have the four-mana Champion of Fairy card, and that's, like, it. Yeah, so basically, a successful Fairies deck would just be a deck that plays a few Fairies for its own purposes. And that's still cool. I mean, Snapcaster's on the outs these days. Is Fairy Mastermind actually better? I kind of think it is. Like, it's a more useful card than Snapcaster. Yuta, when he previewed this card, he said that he expects it to be, like, relevant in even Vintage and Legacy. I think it's great in that sort of format. I love how well the the ability works if you activate it on your opponent's sense step. It's four mana. You draw two cards, your opponent draws one in a lot of scenarios, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it has a little bit of, uh, like, Notion Thief vibes, like punishing your opponents yeah. at flash speed for trying to draw cards. Also has some Spectral Sailor vibes, right, that, that flashed it in and then... Four mana draw. Four mana draw. The way that that would work is that you would draw two, they would draw one. Which, is that good for a tempo deck? I'm, I'm actually not sure. Hmm. I mean, tempo decks don't care about their opponent getting resources as they try to win while your opponent can't use them. Not because they don't have it, but rather because they didn't have the velocity for it. So you think that draw two and opponent draws one is functionally the same as just Spectral Sailor, you draw one? I think for a tempo deck it might be better, even. Oh, really? Okay. This is, of course, talking in formats without free spells, where your opponent's Velocity doesn't depend on having more cards. Because in modern, for example, your velocity is exponentialized if you have more cards due to pitch spells and such, while in Pioneer this is not the truth. Having more cards doesn't make you more faster. Yeah, so that would be like a strike against the Fairy Mastermind in modern, but I still like choose to believe that this card will make it. Uh, it seems better than Mercurial Spell Dancer just because of having flash. It Oh yeah. Also, it would be amazing if you can flash this in. Like your opponent goes, you go turn to open man, and your opponent goes turn to lesser shorter mistral bubble. You flash this in in response to a surveil trigger, get a free draw out of it immediately. Because sorry, not surveil. Um, how did I forget the name? The connive. Yeah, connive. Like connive is not a maze, so we automatically get a draw. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's going to be super important. If this comes up, very Mastermind yeah, yeah. versus Shredder, you can force them to connive. In particular, in Pioneer, it might be super common or such. If this becomes a major card in the metagame, you'll, you'll have to think carefully about when you sack your Mistress Bubbles, and which turn you're drawing that card on. So, yeah, it's a very interesting card. I think this is the most promising one, for sure, of the previews we saw. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it has to be the most interesting one as a playable card. Yeah, David has a note here that he really likes it in conjunction with the Narset Parter of Veils, which will prevent the mm -hmm. opponents from drawing their second card. So again, there's cute ways to make that three and a blue each player draws. Does this work with Narset Parter of Veils? Well, if you have a Narset down and you activate the Fairy Mastermind on 
Oh, I see. Actually, yeah, it doesn't actually make a difference. Like, you're, you're never using the second ability. Well, you'll still be plus one card, so it's... <clears throat> Maybe you just don't need a Narset. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next card up. Moment of Truth. Super simple card. One and a blue instant. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of those cards into your hand, one into your graveyard, one on the bottom. Efficient, nice. I actually quite like this card, especially as a common. For popper purposes, or just because these effects should be common? Yeah, yeah, for popper purposes. And I think it's also an interesting card. Like, I don't know if we will see Pioneer play, but wouldn't surprise me either, you know? The efficiency of choosing out of three, one graveyard, one hand. It's a new effect. We haven't seen this exact effect before. We've seen Anticipate. We've seen Anticipate plus a bonus. We've seen, you know, Curate, which is Surveil to Draw. This is slightly more selection up front in exchange for slightly less graveyard action, right? You only get one card in the graveyard, but that, that's the reason you would play this card is because you want the ability to put one card in your graveyard. Yeah. If you compare it to the sorcery speed versions, like strategic planning, uh, where you, you just put two, in the put, graveyard. put two cards in the graveyard, right? That's just like a much more powerful effect that itself is not super playable. Going to instant speed is worth a lot. I think the difference is if you care about having specific cards in your graveyard or having cards in your graveyard. Like, you have Dell spells or do you have phoenixes that you're trying to surgically select into your graveyard? Mm -hmm. If you're just trying to pinpoint specific stuff into the graveyard, I think this is a lot better as an instant. Yeah, the difference between instant and sorcery is night and day. They're almost not even in the same class. Yeah. I suspect this is just, like, slightly too weak like it's not quite enough like i think in a couple years they'll print this again with another bonus tacked on yeah like scratch surveil you and then do the rest yeah or like you know do this and gain a life or something and then if that doesn't work they'll do it again with two life so this card <laughs> lore wise um sort of proves a long expected theory that elspeth is an angel the small feathers place like wings on her back at the sides and she's returning what would that mean if that were true? Um, so Elspeth having angelic, um, celestial powers, like angelic powers, will put her over the top in power level and likely be a good enough of a threat for the Phyrexians. What? Why would her having angelic powers make a difference? Angels tend to be pretty powerful in empty in empty Hilor. Like the the only one stopping Olivia in Inistrad, not so and like in the few sets ago was um, Sigarda's host of angels. But the Phyrexians have their own angels. They have a Traxa. No. All right. We'll see. <laughs> All of this will be sorted out in March of the Machines and March of the Machines, the Aftermath. Yeah. So next we have Heliod, the Radiant Dawn. Two and double white for a legendary enchantment creature gourd. When it enters the battlefield, return target enchantment card that isn't a gourd from your graveyard to your hand. But more importantly, you can pay 3 and a Phyrexian blue mana to transform Heliod into the Heliod the Warped Eclipse. A Phyrexian Gore that allows you to cast your spells as though they had flash, and spells you cast cost 1 less for each card your opponent has thrown this turn. Super weird combination of abilities. My gut says the backside is just flavor text. Like, you would only play this if you wanted the 4-4 enchantment that draws a card. Mm. Which, to me... This could have been a 3-mana three 3-3, three three, right? 
it would be definitely more powerful if it was cheaper. Three mana, three three, and then also have the flip ability would be a lot better. Yeah, I think they were trying to nerf the card by making you pay four. Yeah. The thing is that putting something into your hand is just not powerful these days. The hand is not a good zone. It's not good enough. Like, this is not necessarily better than just ETB draw a card. It's possibly worse. Hmm. Not only that, but enchantments are not in a particularly good spot when compared to any other type of card. So if I had Enigmatic Incarnation and I played it and I sacked my Fable of the Mirror Breaker, would I ever get a Heliod to get my Fable back into my hand or would I just get something else? You could, I don't think impossible you get a Heliod. Like this card might see Fringe play in Enigmatic just as a 4-4 creature enchantment to put into 5. Like, right now, the best 4-drop you have in, in Pioneer, for example, to put into as a 4-drop is like Omnath, which is super medium because Omnath on end step is not particularly good and you're not playing Fetchlands. But this, get back a Fable, next turn flipping and start playing an Instant Spirit with Enigmatic doesn't suck. Yeah, I'm just not seeing it. I mean, yeah, one of an Enigmatic, perhaps. There are enchantments you might return, like David notes Shark Typhoon and Cast Out here in, in, the, in the show notes. But I think we all agree that these kind of just mid-range 4-4s that get a little value, they're a little bit outclassed these days. Yeah. They just got a touch too small. From there, we have a new style of legendary. They're going full Avengers Endgame <laughs> team-ups. Legendary team-ups. Every plane, two famous legends or more are teaming up to make a single card. Uh, most of these are not that playable, um, so we're going to skip Thalia and the Gitrog monster. We're going to skip Drina and Limbala. Yeah, Drina Limbala is a commander all-star for any commander lovers. You should get that card because it's going to cost a small fortune due to commander only. Just letting everybody know that. Um, a team up that we will talk about is Yargle and Multani. Yargle and Multani. For all the wrong reasons, right? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. You tell me. The only text we have below this card is the four magnificent words Kragan with Cremator lives again. <laughs> I will let anybody do with that as they wish. It's three black, black, green, legendary creature, frog, spirit, elemental. So they're basically giving all of the creature types of the individual legends and just mashing them up together here. Yeah. I don't know if this is like meant to be like they actually like became biologically married now or they're just no no i think multani is just able to like if you look at the yard you see like the tree form of multani like embracing around the argyle's body like empowering it like an armor sort of ah okay so it's like just the wood like turning itself around the argyle as a small armor and multani's head like standing right next to him like a two-headed ogre i see so yargle famously is a a 9-3 creature. Yargle and Multani is an 18-6 creature with no abilities. <laughs> and they managed to, even in the only no ability card in a few years, have a lot of text via an enormous flavor text. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very cute little card here for sure. Why does this card matter? Well, 18 power is the largest we have uh, on, a, on a card right now that you can play in Modern and Pioneer. What are cards that just translate that power directly into winning the game? 
the closest one is Kragenwick Cremator. This is a two red red for a five four giant. When it enters, you have to discard a card at random. If you happen to discard a creature this way, you get to deal damage equal to the power of that creature to any target. Previously, the best you could do was 16 power with Impervious Great Worm, but Yargle lets you do it for 18. So we haven't reached the point yet. That, so what, where is the exact amount of damage where you say in modern, this is a one-shot? We always use 20 as a banner. Like, 20 damage is enough to win you games where opponent doesn't win life. We use 20 damage as a benchmark for a one-shot kill. But in modern, we all know most of our opponents are about to take at least one or two points of damage. Is 18 enough to say it's a one-shot? I think so. For me, it is. I think 18 might. Like, 19, I'm sure. I'm I'm 99% sure my opponent is bound to take one point of damage in the length of a normal modern game. And I can embrace that 19 is lethal. 18 is right down, is where I put the line and that I'm not sure. Like, 17 I wouldn't, like, ever. Yeah, and 15 we know is, is not lethal, as we've seen from the Calibrated Blast deck. From the old versions. Well, yeah, also the old versions of this deck. It's 5 0 in the past with Impervious Great Worm for 16. Hmm. Ah, the way that you build the deck is you probably play Strangleberg Geist and Eldritch Evolution. I think that's a good way to get those, that chip damage in hmm. and make sure that you have access to yeah. the Cremator when you want it. Yeah, the fact that one guy's connecting once is enough is pretty amazing. The question is how do we find Yargle? We just naturally draw it, or are we set enough to run like El Adam Riskol? Yeah, that, that's a question I do not know the answer to yet. Elam is called does also find the cremator, so it's like a double show. It's like triggers everything. Pitch elementals helps us keep our hand empty. Okay, there might be something. Yargle is black-green. It does not pitch to fury, so I don't know if that's bad or good. It's definitely off-plan. Like, if this were just a red-green card, we'd be very happy, because then whenever you... You don't have the combo set up. You just pitch Yargle to Fury and you're doing your red-green beatdown thing. At six mana, you, you could theoretically take a four drop and Eldritch Evolution that to get your 18 power into play. I don't know if that's actually worth it. But it's something to think about. Where Impervious Great Worm had Convoke but was hmm. otherwise just very difficult to get into play. Yeah. All right, yeah. A six mana 18-6 can just randomly win a game. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I can see someone dying to opponent hitting them with a Yargle, and I can feel the tilt already. So the last time that I played Kragen with Cremator, I tried to combine through the breach with... Uh, so I had like Emrakul as my 15, right? I yeah. said 15 was as good as 16, so that I can play through the breach and Kragen with Cremator. Do you think it would work to through the breach a Yargle? No, I'm never gonna through the breach a... What about Goryeo's Vengeance? Oh, no. <laughs> no. Why would you, why would you <laughs> Gorius mentions that instead of Emrakul? Because 15 does not win the game. But 18 might. But Annihilator 6 kind of does. <laughs> it depends. If you do it too early, it doesn't win the game. This is the most unblockable thing I have ever seen. Like, if I, if I, if I can imagine the painting someone's side as I play a Mogwar Marshal and they have the Gorius mentions for this. They solitude it. I gain 18 life. Oh. Proceed to scoop up my cards. <laughs> <laughs> proceed to scoop with my 18 life. 
All right, there's one more silly team-up we can mention. Uh, this is the dinosaur-vampire combo. The Ixalan team-up. This is your set, Mord. <laughs> Why? Just because of the team-ups? Because of the Avengers set? No, because you're an Ixalan fan. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's I so just cool. love Ixalan. Oh, Ixalan, such a good set. All map a character with such deep lore and continuity that makes absolute sense in the worldly setup. Uh, Galta and Mabren, two of the least flavor-working characters in the history of magic together once again. So we have a three of any color, two green, two white, legendary creature, dinosaur, vampire. For a 12-12 trampler that whenever you attack, you get to choose one. Create a tap and attacking XX green dinosaur, where X is the greatest power, among other attacking creatures. Or... X11 white vampire creature tokens where X is the number of attacking creatures. So you can either double your attackers or make another huge one. So the reason this card might be relevant is because you can put it into play with Sora and Imperious Bloodlord. It's currently the biggest vampire that you can put into play. Uh, previously that honor belonged to Xander, is that right? The, the one from Capenna? Lord Xander? Yeah who had an ETB trigger, he would make your opponent discard half the cards in their hand. Also had a kind of awkward attack trigger that milled half their deck, which was often a, down, a downside, like <laughs> that sometimes lost you the game. Um, and that was only a 7-7. Seven, seven. Galta, you know, you put this in on turn three with a Sorin. If you had another vampire in play, you could actually get value immediately off of this attack trigger. Yeah. Um, if you have like a gifted Aetherborn and a Knight of the Ebon Legion in play, you're, you're probably winning this game. But uh, I don't know. Does this, actually, does this actually solve any problems? I I don't think so. But I am gonna at least once in my lifetime play a Sorin minus three and put in Galtan Mabren, and then I might lose. But I'm gonna do that once at least. The result of that once might depend on the existence of second and third. <laughs> so that's just an interaction to be aware of. I think that uh, Sorin is actually getting reprinted in a secret layer. So if you hmm. want to pick up your playset. Um, now is the time to do this. Those are the team-ups, and from there, the last cards we can look at are just some of the Phyrexian baddies. Shall we go to Omneth? We can go to something we all meme about, never expected to happen, and just hits us all across the face. Dan, tell us about the Locus of All. Omneth is black now. All five colors, Wooburg, except the black mana is Phyrexian. That's actually pretty cute, pretty flavorful. It means that you can play it for four and two life, or for five. Still a four-four, this time a Phyrexian elemental. Static text, if you would lose unspent mana, that mana becomes black instead. A little callback to the original Omnath text of hoarding your unspent mana. In addition to that, at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, you look at the top card of your library. You may reveal that card if it has three or more colored mana symbols in its mana cost. And if you do that, then you get to add three mana in any combination of colors and draw the card, the one that you revealed. Hmm. If the card on top of your deck does not have three or more colors, you don't get the mana. Uh, you don't reveal it, but you do get to draw it. So you're basically you're drawing a card no matter what. And if you're lucky, you or if you've built a very golden color pip and intensive deck, hmm. you'll be, you know, ritualing and drawing uh, every turn, which while very powerful, it's a bad trigger. Like this is the worst time for a trigger to happen, beginning of your pre-combat main phase. Yeah, it, it becomes in any way, shape or form impossible to get it 
before your next turn, before your opponent, before you get a draw step and before your opponent can kill it like 16 times. Important to let know, three or more color mana symbols. For example, you can get Talian the Gidrock Monster, you can get Mavren and Galta, you can get Yargol and Multani. It doesn't say different, it says three or more. Oh, okay. That's nice. Uh, yeah, but even despite that, I just don't think this one... No, no. This one has it. Like, I mean, it's a 4-mana four 4-4 four, four that rumps you and allows you to draw an extra card every single turn. I don't think it's going to be unplayable. I'm just not sure if it will see any play. Like, this isn't one of the cards I will be like, yeah, this is never going to see any play. From Omneth, uh, we have Jingataxius. No commas, just Jingataxius. The first of the fifth. Every single one of them is going to get a new card. It's a terrifying design. <laughs> a monster creature on the front that transforms into a saga, and then when the saga completes, it transforms back into a creature. To me, Jingataxius is not playable. I don't know if, if you feel the same way. I think it's too expensive to get to the side of the saga. The saga is extremely powerful. Draw cards equal to a number of cards in your hand, followed by a bounce everything. And then you may cast any number of spells from your hand without paying their mana cost. Like, if this flips, you're winning, likely. But you have to spend 9 combined mana for that. Yeah, the problem is the front side of Jinkataxius, the creature side, doesn't pass the test. It's 3 blue-blue for a 5-5 five, five, ward 2. And it does not have an enter the battlefield trigger. So that's the problem. It has interesting static text that says whenever you cast a non-creature spell with mana value 3 or greater, you draw a card. But, you know... If we wanted that, we would just play Karuga instead. Karuga is a much more forgiving way hmm. to profit off of your Leyline Bindings. Yeah. So I think, yeah, for me, Jinkataxis is not it for Constructed. I think Imrith Desert Doom is just like a better card at the same cost. Um, it's a cool card for sure for Commander and such. Lastly, do you have any hope for this new Chandra? Chandra the Hope's Beacon. So... Chandra Hope's Beacon, 6 mana, legendary planeswalker Chandra. Passive ability, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, copy it, and you may choose new targets. Triggers only once each turn. Plus 2, add 2 mana of any color, plus 1, exile the top 5 cards, and you may cast any instant or sorcery until the end of your next turn. Minus X, Kayat, and Chandra deals X damage to each of up 2 targets. So see, 6 mana with a powerful passive, when she enters, she can deal up to... 8 distributed damage, like, kill 2 creatures with 4 toughness immediately. The problem is, you gotta pay 6 mana for a planeswalker that has to survive, and has no way of going through counter spells or anything. Once Chandra Hope's Beacon is in play, it feels just, like, completely insane. Like, the strongest Chandra ever, once it's in play. But it's 6, you know, it doesn't have that counter spell protection. Yeah. That static text is nuts. The static oh text, like, I can think of something like playing her in turn 6, plus 2, play something like a bolt or any spell, interactive spell, and just getting it double can't be enough for her to survive. Should I try to cheat her into play somehow? Like, or should I just ramp to her? Maybe. Maybe just in a big, in a chunky, in one of those chunky red decks, like prison decks, where you can just ritual this out on turn 4 and control the game. I feel like as a as a fair card, just like a power value card, she's checks all the boxes, but I wonder if there's like some sneaky combo with that static text that we're just not we haven't thought of it yet. I think that makes it worth it trying to cheat her in. The once per turn is in place to stop exactly that. Hmm, okay. Fair enough. 
like his mate trying for us to never combo it out with her. Just get our value. <laughs> All right. Well, a cool card, nevertheless. I think that's where we're going to leave it for these early previews. We're going to skip the last few. Um, I don't think they're going to make it in constructed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, neither. Commander and Commander likely. But then you have some beautiful picks for today, right? Oh, some beautiful ones. I'm excited for this. <laughs> Worth the wait. We got two picks, both in modern. Mord, I'm going to turn it over to you first. Tell me about the Trash for Treasure. Oh, Grass for Treasure. I can't believe this deck managed to top it a challenge, but here we are. So, everybody knows how Trash for Treasure. In this podcast, we have talked non-stop about this card in different occasions. Three mana sorcery, sacrifice an artifact, return an artifact from graveyard to play. So, in the past 10 years, the only thing worth coming back was Sundering Titan and Worm Coil, then all of a sudden, Phyrex and Dragon Engine and Portal to Phyrexia came into play as the best threats. And all of a sudden, we're being told that there's actually something better. Something better to do with all these scrapwork mats and Boldron Epic Ears and Season Pyromancer tokens. Why not make them into Shaggernauts? <laughs> My god. This card is just like such like a walking meme, and yet it's here as three copies in a deck that made top eight in a modern challenge. Graz Unstoppable Juggernaut. 8 mana legendary artifact creature Juggernaut, 7-5, it's got the Juggernaut text, so your Juggernauts attack every turn, they have to attack, and they can't be blocked by walls, and all other creatures, all other creatures that you control have base power and toughness 5-3 and are Juggernauts in addition to their other types, so it just makes everything a Juggernaut now. Is that a game-winning card? I mean, I co- I, so I went ahead and shout-outs to the winner... Um, Kalua777 wrote an in-depth guide about the deck in Reddit, actually went into a good amount of detail into the deck selection, and actually made me consider the fact that Grass is actually good for his deck when he go- went into it. I have played against this sort of deck, I have played against this sort of deck with Goblins and with other decks, and this sort of deck cannot beat Goblins, for example. You don't have enough removal, you don't have interaction. So if the game goes long, you're just gonna get jumped out of your Sundering Titan, or you're just gonna... Your threats are not gonna add up. Like, if you're playing against a combo deck, your Portal to Phyrexia nor your Sundering Titan do anything. So going turn 3, Trash for Treasure is not gonna win you the game. But if you win something like turn 1, Dragon, turn 2, Season Pyromancer, turn 3, Grass, hit you for 20... Now that actually might be fast enough. And you have a lot of bad creatures in this deck that actually get huge. Hayward Boulder and Epicure, Goblin Engineer, Scrapwork Mat, Season Pyromancer tokens, um, Ursa Saga tokens, Experimental Synthesizer Samurais, um, etc., etc., etc. Everything becomes a 5-3. Yeah, the, the write-up was great. Uh, we'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can find it on the modern subreddit. They kept referring to Graz as Crater of Behemoth. Yeah, and <laughs> an important thing, they were willing to admit it was worse than Behemoth. They were willing to admit all the flaws the card has, that it can get removed. But also to say, this card won me a lot of games. Sometimes opponents don't have the Leyland Binding. 
and a 7-5 that because everything 5-3 comes all of a sudden. You are not expecting it a lot of the time. I would never play around grass. If my body has three one ones and I am at 12, I'm not leaving back a champ blocker. Right, right, exactly. I'm not. Why would I? And all of a sudden, my opponent is going to go um, third step on the Ursa Saga, um, get an underworld cookbook, discard with a cookbook, put grass into the graveyard, trash for treasure, kill you. And I'm going to tilt and it's going to be correct. That's what Cross does. So what I love about this deck is that, well, the pilots said they've been working on this for a long time. They've been a trash for treasure player ever since Goblin Engineer was printed. They've been trying to make this deck work. And you can kind of see all of that in the deck list. Like, it's, it's got a lot of new cards. It's been gradually replacing the sketchy stuff with more playable stuff. So you look at the deck list and there's not that many bad cards in here, right? Ragavan, Voldaren Epicure... Scrapwork Mutt, we really like. It's beautiful synergy here with the Trash for Treasure discard outlet. It even unearths a 5-3 with haste when grass is in play. Goblin Engineer, of course, you know, it's there to set up stuff like a combo, but it's not just that, right? Like they talk in the primer about how the one copy of Phyrexian Dragon Engine is, is a huge threat with the Goblin Engineer, right? So you play it like a Stoneforge Mystic where you assume it's gonna die. But you can maybe set up for your second engineer, and if it ever doesn't die, you can just start looping a dragon engine in an experimental synth that just draws as many cards as you need to. Season Pyromancer, both halves of it making tokens, right? Exile yeah. from the graveyard to make tokens, which become five threes. He admitted the inefficiency of synthesizer in this particular deck that most of the time it's not gonna be a two for one, it's gonna be like a one point six for one, because you have a lot of heavy misses, grass, sundering, portal. You have three or four cards that you're never going to be able to cast, and he says that's fine. Synthesizer is so powerful with what the deck is trying to do that it's something you have to be fine with. Yeah, and you can always sort of get bailed out. You know, there's four Urza Sagas here, there's four Ragavans here, so you're not really playing bad cards. Some of the lines might take a little practice, right? Like, playing the Saga on turn one is not that intuitive, but it does allow you to get that underworld cookbook on turn three which is your discard outlet to set the trash for treasure like that that could be your play depending on your opening hand so definitely just like a sweet archetype a sweet space to play around in this artifact reanimator we've been saying this for a while that between blood tokens between scrapwork mutt and engineer there's there's a lot of ways for artifacts specifically to loot things into the graveyard it's just missing that payoff I did not think Graz would be that payoff, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. Apparently it is, and we never saw it coming. Yeah, amazing job by Kalua777. Yeah. And our final deck for today, our second pick of the week, is another brew that has just been dominating in the modern challenges. <laughs> by Hank the Obese. Yes, MTGO user Hank the Obese has apparently been playing variations of this deck in different formats for a while and just decided one day that you know, the time was right to unleash it on Modern. And they've racked up four challenge top eights in the last two weeks alone, which is shocking to me. Because <laughs> when you look at this deck, you know, mono-white humans, the cards that that phrase conjures into your mind... Are not good. Are not good, and they would not get you very close to what's in this deck. <laughs> This is like a free spell pitch humans aggro deck. Free spell is four solitudes, 
for Chancellor of the Annex, so when you reveal that from your opening hand, it taxes your opponent's first spell of the game by one mana. And for Shining Shoals, Shining Shoal is one of the original pitch spells from Champions of Kamigawa. It's X white white, and it redirects X damage from one source to another, but you can pitch a white card to it and set the value of X that way without paying any mana. Well, what are you going to pitch to it? I mean, if you're playing, you know, one drop humans, you don't have that much exciting stuff to pitch, but you have the Chancellors, they pitch for seven, and you also have four Emerio's Call, which is just here to be a land, right? You're, you're never going to cast Emerio's Call here. It's a land that pitches for seven for a seven point Shining Shoal, or it pitches to your Solitude. Super efficiently. Yeah, exactly. So that's your, your free package, and then to actually turn the Shining Shoal into a win, you have to pressure the life total. You're looking at a cheap human's curve with 12 1-drops, 10 2-drops, oh, sorry, 12 2-drops, and 4 3-drops. I want to make a super important declaration that I haven't realized until right now. The last three challenges on Fridays, Mhang the Obis has went 3rd, 7th, and 11. So in three consecutive challenges, two top 8s are a top 12, with the exact same decklist. Yeah, it, it doesn't look like it should work, but clearly it is working. What are the creatures? Well, Champion of the Parish, Esper Sentinel, these are the best one-drop humans. Dauntless Bodyguard is uh, the other one in this list, although I've seen versions where he's playing Hopeful Initiate instead. At two mana, Luminarch Aspirant, Thalia's Lieutenant, four of each. Two Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, two Rafine's Informant. That's another way to just convert that uh, that Chancellor in your hand. Into, into something. Yeah, something new and a 3-2 creature is not the worst. Talia only a 2 off because of the 4 shawl instead of the usual flay set. Ah, interesting, yeah. And then 4 Adeline. 3 mana is actually kind of a lot for a 20 land deck, but you know, Adeline is maybe just so powerful that it's worth it. Sometimes turn 5 Adeline is still good enough. In the lands, we see 4 Cavern of Souls. We see 3 Mutavolts. Um, so really there's like... Just games where you're going to be constrained on white mana. I watched uh, Lawson stream this last night. He went 4-0 against the red decks. You know, turning their unholy heats back at them was just a backbreaking play. But he had trouble against the other matchups. I think he lost against the non-red decks. So it can be an awkward deck. Like if you're not used to hands like this, you just look at the cards and they just seem mismatched. But uh, I mean, it clearly it works. So maybe it's just, you know, we need, we need to keep practicing with this and, and rethink what a white weenie humans deck is capable of with access to these free cards. I think I, I, I'm just surprised by the interaction of how well this works against either Fury, making it so your opponent went from killing two of your creatures to actually losing four life, or well with Unholy Hit. Protecting another line from an Unholy Hit making your opponent take six has to be amazing. So if my opponent pitches to fury to wipe out my board make them take four i have a shining shoal so they just hit themselves for four instead oh my god yeah i mean is, if red is the best color in modern this is the deck for that metagame yeah i mean if you look at the boarded druid decks and such you're gonna see they're playing four main deck burrenton so clearly we're playing a red in a in a red format oh four burrenton four centers in the main deck yeah here he has yeah. four Sanctifier in the sideboard instead of the Burrenton because they're a human, but yeah. 
going ahead with just four sanctifier. We haven't really seen humans be a player in, in modern, but if you look at you know how you would put the cyborg together, there's four sanctifier, two Dranath magistrate, three containment priest, two sanctum prelate, three leyline of sanctity, one emrakul for anti miltech. These are all good options that have been, you know, individually added to modern over the last few years and to little little fanfare. Like they haven't really made an impact on the format, but they're useful and they're humans. So don't forget about them. Hmm. Never forget about the humans. But yeah, I think that is it for us today. Two beautiful deck lists. And we're not gonna go into the epoch, but there was also a slitter wisp deck list getting a top four and a paper RCQ. So congrats to someone who finally made Slitter Wisp. <laughs> Win something? Yes. <laughs> Leyline binding. Leyline binding. So, yeah, if you want more details on all of this, you can check out the extended show notes. That's a benefit available to all of our Patreon supporters. Still one day left to cast your vote for the next card. Um, but, yeah, we will let you all know how that all turns out next week. Exactly. So, thanks so much, everybody. Hope you have a lovely day and see you soon. Bye-bye. Decklist for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for new brews featuring Elesh Norn, plus testing results with Mind Splice Apparatus. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.